You're listening to Ember Weekend, your weekend recap of all things Ember. This is episode 33. I'm Chase McCarthy. And I'm Jonathan Jackson, and we're here to keep you in the Ember Run Loop. We're broadcasting from Hashrocket HQ. It's November 2nd, and today's episode is called Context Clues. This past Wednesday, Dan McLean released a blog post about closure actions. This is Dan McLean of Emberland fame and also a former Ember Weekender. And the, the post talked a lot about uh, closure actions. And uh, he wrote a, this is, this is piggybacking off of a previous blog post he wrote on closure actions that was also very good, uh, discussing how you can uh, rely on bubbling uh, in order to kind of communicate between different levels of nesting in your components. In this new blog post, he outlined some really cool examples that we're going to go into um, where he uses utilizes closure actions rather than uh, the old old bubbling semantics. And I think it turned out really good. Chase, what, what are the, some of the things that you uh, liked about this post? I like how he explained that you could uh, use closure actions to basically, uh, you know, pass in some context from the top level. Uh, some parent has some model or something that you need in a lower level and you can kind of attach that to an action, you know, render a child component that knows uh, a little more specific information about what it's rendering. It can tack that onto the action. And then the last, the last component that you render doesn't really have to know anything other than maybe that it's doing some submit or delete or something. And it gets all the kind of surrounding context of, uh, of the, the chain that was passed down to it. Um, so that, it, was, it was really interesting. The example he gives is basically like, uh, I think he has dogs, cats, dog, and cat. And, uh, and he, you know, when you would click a button, it basically triggers an action uh, on the parent uh, based off the one that was clicked. And the, and the way that uh, this information is, uh, gets down to that last button uh, is, is the interesting part. Yeah, I really enjoy the use of, of currying functions here. It's uh, something that I've utilized quite a bit uh, recently, and it's, it's, just, it's just nice. It's just nice to be able to kind of do that. And then the things that uh, um, need to know the information kind of own that information. Uh, rather than kind of relying on um, more implicit kind of directives and how to get your data to look right. So this currying stuff is really sweet. Yeah, one of the other interesting things about this is that uh, the way that the actions are attached to the click handler, um, it's using uh, closure actions, but rather than the first parameter being the name of the action in the context to execute, it's actually another closure action. Um, so you can cause, so if you think about saying something like action, click, and then you maybe pass a parameter, in this case it was dog, that will call the click action on the parent. Uh, but what uh, Dan does in this article, he says action, and then the first parameter is adders click. So it's already a closure action. So um, the closure action he's creating is just going to call the other closure action that it's wrapping, but it will add a parameter of dog. And the main focus of this blog post is about how uh, these closure actions don't bubble in the normal way that the click events would. Um, so you're basically responsible for uh, getting that data up to the parents, and these things don't end up bubbling up to, um, you know, controllers, um, and definitely not to routes. So um, he goes into how you would get that effect if you need it. Yeah, which is really, really, really neat. Um, so yeah, this is definitely a post that I recommend uh, brushing up your closure action skills with. Um, so if you get a chance, you should definitely check it out. So I had a little bit of open source time this uh, past week, and I was able to put a little time into trying to get Ember Weekend um, working with Fastboot. And again, because uh, we actually were able to get this running with Fastboot before uh, Glimmer, right, Chase? I think that was somewhere around episode 11 or 9. Yeah, I think it was right when, when Glimmer was was just on Canary. Right, right. And uh, and we had a much simpler app then, so it was a little bit easier. And we were able to just remove things that uh, that got in our way. So anything that kind of conflicted, we just we just 
took an axe to it because this was just a kind of proof of concept to see how far we can get. Uh, and one of those one of those things was Liquid Fire. Um, Liquid Fire actually has um, some fast boot support, and I think I think there's some work being done to try to make it work well with within the context of Node. Um, one of the things uh, that uh, Fastboot does is it uses uh, Simple DOM to uh, parse out, to use uh, Simple DOM with HTML bars to um, to kind of create the string output that you would expect. But uh, Simple DOM doesn't actually implement document. So anything that relies on document, any JavaScript that you have that relies on document, needs to be guarded against. So you need to ensure that the document exists. Um, and I was running into this with uh, the import from Velocity. So Liquid Fire has a dependency on Velocity.js, and it obviously uses a document because you know that's kind of what its job is. So um, so it makes sense. And uh, what I ended up doing was I ended up wrapping a thing around it to to make it basically not look at it and just um, it's just a guard that says you know if document's not undefined then then do your thing. Otherwise, don't. Um, which is really you know which is fine. But I kind of wanted a way for Ember CLI itself, <clears throat> specifically Ember app's import method. So when you're inside of your Ember CLI build file app.import, it would be really nice to have the ability to just set a flag there that says wrap this uh, in a guard against you know this DOM availability. So I actually started working on that, and I actually got most of the way there, uh, but uh, there's still some work to be done. And it's one of those things where I'm just uh, kind of getting my toes in the dipping my toes in the water uh to figure out a little bit more about fastboot and i think there's there's some going to be some hurdles uh coming coming up especially with regard to testing this pr and then figuring out how to how to do it all but um fastboot's really exciting and i definitely want to put extra time into it and maybe get some eyes on it to see uh kind of where where it can go cuz i'm very excited about the idea especially after listening to that talk we mentioned a few weeks back about uh, progressive enhancement by Tom Dale. Definitely excited to see Fastboot, uh, and I'm really excited to see movement on it. So, um, yeah, so check it out. We actually wrote a blog post um, and posted it to Ember Weekend, uh, kind of outlining what we did and pointing to the PRs. So we'll link to that, and you can check it out if you want to. So Chase and I investigated the RFC around um, Ember contextual components, which is now not behind a feature flag anymore on Canary. So it's like kind of ready to go, kind of shipped. Um, I, I'm sure there's going to be more work done on it as you know, as people start using it and finding you know all of the the little things and they flesh it out. But it is uh, it is available and things that you can do with Ember contextual components end up being really really neat. Uh, we decided to kind of dive into it and try to you know do some some preliminary research around how you can do maybe a form for uh, input kind of thing like similar dsl to what rails does with a uh, form 4 uh, and we actually got that working and it was surprisingly easy and and really fun um this uh this was all kind of because we saw the the talk from ember nyc by uh, matthew beal outlining um how to use these ember contextual components he also mentions the routing service and one other feature that's uh, that's in development but uh, ember contextual components are really cool um, so what are some of the things we learned, Chase? Well, in the, in the beginning, we started out with a really simple example uh, that kind of works in the kind of the old style of Ember where you'd uh, just do kind of two-way data binding. Uh, and, and to get that to work, we basically had to do this uh, you know, this trick with the action mutable um, so that the model you passed in was you know two-way bound. So any, any of the uh, inputs in this form four we were developing uh, would automatically change the model. And uh, that was super simple. Um, the amount of the amount of code we had to write was 
uh, very minimal. I think we only needed uh, one action uh, for the, the very last kind of like input component in order for that the update to trigger in the right time. Yeah, and then some and some uh, clever uses of the mutable helper too. Yeah, that that's uh, that's the key thing. Uh, it's also it, it's also probably the uh, the thing that will confuse most people. Um, Definitely. Uh, like why you actually need that, whereas you used to not uh, used to just be to say value is like model dot first name, and that would be two way bound. And and why you need this kind of like um, I think we ended up using on change or no, it was that on input on on input, yeah. And uh, and that way you got a for every single key and you know keystroke you got this update event firing, uh, which would change the the model. Um, and then after that was done, we basically did a a more uh, kind of up to spec. Uh, nice Ember way, like the way you would actually want to develop this, where the component basically gets gets the model, reads the initial values off, um, and then from there kind of is working on like a clone of the data in that model uh, based off of whatever things were rendered. So uh, we have this model that had three properties, an ID, a first name, and a last name. But obviously in the form, we're not trying to render every property of the model. We only want to render the ones we want the user to edit. So in this case, it was first name and last name. Uh, so when we rendered the form four and the uh, first name and last name inputs get rendered, uh, those basically uh, those keys go into the parent form and create a what we call the buffer object uh, that is a thing that's designed to store the intermediate values before the users press the submit button. Um, and then pressing the submit button goes and reads the values one more time and then passes those as the parameter to a, a submit action so that the you know the surrounding context that called the initial uh, form four. Uh, can handle the action of you know this model these parameters you uh, tried to update by rendering fields were changed or maybe not changed yeah and you can kind of make the decision there so the end result uh the the invocation would be form four model equals model update equals you know your update action and then as form and then form input first name uh, well field equals first name and those uh those ended up being really interesting uh like that that signature looked really familiar and it felt really good uh, so I'm I'm definitely excited about this. Uh, and one of the interesting things that we had to do here, uh, in order to allow the registration of the child components to the main component, uh, rather than passing in the entire this concept, we talked about this recently about using that uh, block those those yielded block parameters as a as a kind of API. We actually hand down a register function, and that register function to the to the form input component, which is the child of the form four, and that was responsible for registering itself its field name with um, with within the buffered uh, object, and then also giving a closure function um, that would allow them to retrieve the value at a later time. So when we end up calling submit, we just say, okay, we'll go and find everything on the buffered object, um, get each one of its keys, call the function, which would then retrieve the value, and then submit those adders uh, to the update action that was passed in. And it ended up being really clean uh, felt uh, felt pretty good. The only thing that was a little strange is that we had to wrap it in kind of a closure uh, thing. That uh, there's probably a way to use Ember Bind to do that, but I don't know. We just kind of fell back into old ECMA five tropes and made it work. But uh, it ended up being really good. And there's a proof of concept JS bin that you can take a look at and um, and begin dabbling with Ember contextual components. So this past Thursday, we had another Emberjacks, uh, and this time we talked about a little bit of the work that me and John were doing uh, we, around kind of the Ember CLI um, Rails bridge. There's currently a project that, that does this, but it, but it does it in a way that where Rails basically controls all of the asset compilation. 
uh, and we've been leaning more heavily on using something like Ember CLI deploy um, to let Ember CLI kind of do its own thing and uh, you know let Rails do its own thing and then kind of increase the air gap but still allow uh, Cucumber testing in between the whole thing. Yeah, I, I think that that's really the key. So right now, Ember CLI Rails uh, is the is the project with uh, Sean Doyle doing a lot of really great work there at Thoughtbot, um, and we're seeing you know you load a an, a Rails view, and in, from within that you require the script tags that it provides, and those script tags point to the Ember assets, the Vendor JS and the Ember J in uh, your Ember app .js, and that um, puts the puts the app on the page, but it has some limitations. Some of the limitations uh, revolve around asset management, but you know, not the least of which is content four from the index.html are not on the page, so many add-ons don't work, um, and there's a number of other issues with um, with some granularity of this. And once again, most of these things are being worked through, but I think the the eventual push that we're trying to go for is to have a more complete separation so that the Ember app is over uh, in in wherever, it doesn't matter. And then the Rails app is, you know, wherever, it doesn't matter. Um, but they're still able to work together to test, to do a full stack test. And uh, that's something that I'm really passionate about. Yeah, and uh, I started off doing this, um, not, not with the intent of actually uh, doing any work on Ember CLI Rails. I was just trying to get a uh, an Ember app to kind of play nicely with Rails and, and allow Rails to be able to serve the index file. Um, and then it turned out that I ran into a lot of the, uh, you know, the same problems um, that, that many people have solved um, and that, that Ember CLI Rails kind of was, was born to try to solve. Um, and when uh, I, and with a couple of the solutions that I came up with, Sean Doyle ended up getting uh, interested and wanted to, to talk and, um, and, you know, talk about bringing this into Ember CLI Rails. And I was really happy to find out that uh, his kind of goal in the, uh, is to pull in more of Ember CLI deploys kind of uh, methodology, and and he actually has written a uh, Ember CLI, uh, an Ember CLI Rails deploy Redis uh, gem already that lets you you know uh, do this lightning fast deploy style uh, from within Ember CLI Rails. Um, there there is still going to be some uh, backwards compatibility, but um, it's nice to know that we're kind of both headed in the same direction. So a lot of the work me and John are doing can be you know, pulled into Ember CLI Rails. Yeah, I'm really excited about it. I, I kind of can't wait to see how, how it ends up. I know that uh, you've also written the asset gem that would allow backward compat for Ember CLI Rails to uh, the Ember app to be able to reference some Rails assets. Uh, that's really interesting. And still fingerprint. That's the, that's the real thing. Yeah. Uh, and, and I think that uh, that's going to be really interesting. So I'm really excited about the, the direction of this project. And uh, I want to see, see it mature. I think it's going to be a really good thing. Yeah, and we kind of, um, in the meetup, we broke this down into like all the different layers that go into like this problem. Um, and the things that we ba we think are the kind of the large areas are, first of all, routing, you know, just getting your Rails app to be able to serve the Ember, in the Ember app at all. Like, um, and in this case, it's by doing, by just serving the, the text that is the index HTML from Ember CLI Rails. So with no doctoring, Rails just has to somehow be able to find that uh, index file and, uh, and pull it out and serve it to the user. Yeah, and that's going to be interesting because uh, once that's done, then you don't have to worry about cores, which is one of the really cool parts about uh, Ember CLI deploy strategy because the index HTML is served from the same domain as your backend. So you get a lot of things for free there. It's pretty cool. And, um, um, you know, with due to the kind of the collaboration of this, um, something was brought to my attention that I didn't even think about, uh, which was that, um, which was uh, Sean Doyle mentioned you could take that time to inject certain things into the index HTML uh, to kind of uh, bootstrap the data that Ember needs for the page that it's on. 
Uh, and I thought that was really interesting. Yeah, that's going to be really, uh, really cool. I, I'm still kind of concerned at how, how you're going to actually push it in uh, to, you know, Ember Data, for instance, without, um, without having to have two uh, separate models or two adapters, rather. Um, I think all, all you'd end up doing is just um, uh, writing onto the page somewhere, you know, just some JavaScript variable that's like data. And uh, that data is just um, a JSON API document of all the, all the data models you might have. Like, you know, it could have like users and you know, posts and comments or whatever, anything, but they're all in a JSON API document. Um, and then you could just have an initializer that goes onto the document and reads that and just does a push payload um, and takes all that, throws it into to Ember Data. Oh, that'd be cool. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah so, so bootstrapping is a is another kind of like low hanging fruit kind of kind of thing when once the solution gets pulled in. Yeah, and then the 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 next kind of tier down, or the next thing we're going to try and really work on is uh you know this integration with deployment, um, which Sean Doyle has already done uh, the the kind of Redis deploy part, um, which we we pulled into some uh, uh, this this route gym we worked on, um, and Ember CLI deploy is obviously what we're using, so that layer is pretty much kind of handling itself. Um, uh, the next layer down is basically all the build tooling and that's, that's taken into, um, and, uh, that's all done in Ember CLI rails. So it just basically kind of uses any, uh, any rails commands you need to do rails kind of serving stuff. Um, and then has some rake tasks built in to, uh, do things like build Ember apps. Uh, hopefully we'll add some for something like deploying Ember apps because we're using Ember CLI deploy, um, running tests for Ember, all that kind of stuff. And then the last layer is kind of an optional layer. It's not going to be needed by everybody. Um, because I know, I know, uh, because I know Sean is thinking he's just going to use rails and just the, the root is going to be an Ember app. So there's no rails assets to load. Um, but in, in my case, and I know in a lot of people's cases, they have an existing rails app that they want to have, you know, a portion of it in Ember and maybe they want to share assets from this existing rails app into the Ember app. So there's the last piece of this glue that allows the Ember app to be, uh, compiled with the asset paths, uh, of the rails assets. Yeah, that'll be really, really cool. I, I that was something that has bit me several times because if you want to reference those assets, you kind of have to turn off fingerprinting, and then you can run into some really annoying caching problems. Uh, that you know, basically, you're going back to pre-asset pipeline days, and that's just you know, that's that's not good. Yeah, and the so, solution for this was actually really interesting. Um, basically, uh, I just uh, took exactly what uh, happens in Rake assets precompile, and then uh, wrote out a asset manifest. Um, for development, so that the the two apps could talk to each other, and this manifest would be written to temp, and then uh, the there's a kind of an accompanying Ember add-on that knows where you know that is configured to know where to look for that manifest, and then it does kind of its own um, asset rewrite uh, at build time to replace this the the few assets that are basically like whitelisted in this file, um, and so in my case, I had listed it to replace anything that began with Rails slash assets. So I had like rail slash assets slash application CSS. It would just look for this in the manifest and then get the fingerprinted version and replace that in the final Ember build uh, with a relative path to where to find that file. Which I, th I think is the same way that Broccoli Asset Rev does its, its job, right? You're just kind of, you're actually tapping into Broccoli Asset Rev. Is that correct? Yeah, it's, um, it's I'm not actually tapping into Asset Rev. It just does the exact same thing, but they both use, uh, I think it's called Broccoli Asset Rewrite okay. uh, under the hood. Very cool. Very cool. So yeah, there's a lot of exciting work uh, going into this uh, this project, especially uh, when we start trying to pull it into Ember CLI Rails. And uh, we're we're definitely going to be sure to keep you in the loop if uh, if you're a Rails a Rails person. Then this uh, this is definitely something to tune into. Thanks for listening to Ember Weekend. 
If you'd like to follow along, visit us at emberweekend.com. Or you can find us at Ember Weekend, all one word, on Twitter, or subscribe via RSS. I'm Chase McCarthy. And I'm Jonathan Jackson. And we'll see you next weekend.